Welcome to Stand Forever, the podcast based on the truth that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Stand Forever originated from the First Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri, just outside of Kansas City. Our teacher is Ken Parker, the church's senior pastor. In a world of shifting sands and cultural and social turmoil, it is vitally important that the people of God rely on the Word of God. To remind us all of that importance now, here's Ken. Not everything is true that we hear or that we read. I have a professor friend who interacted with a student recently about missing class. Here's the way that particular conversation went. The student wrote as follows, Dr. Blank, I was absent Tuesday due to the fact that my alarm chose, my alarm chose to not go off, and I woke up with 10 minutes of class left. I heard you gave a take-home quiz. Am I able to get that from you tomorrow morning? My friend responded as follows, I'm sorry you missed class. I'm thankful that you were not sick. Unfortunately, I'm not able to provide quizzes for unexcused absences. I must admit, however, I would be very interested in acquiring an alarm like yours that has volition. I've not seen that yet. Hope to see you in class today. You see, some things really just aren't true. The alarm clock did not decide anything, right? The alarm clock did not decide anything. In fact, the student decided either not to set it or he decided to ignore it if it went off. But the clock did not decide anything. There are a lot of things these days that pass for truth that quite simply aren't true. And we're going to talk about some of them today. Some might say what we're going to deal with is controversial. Okay. Lyman Beecher once said, No great advance has been made in science, politics, or religion without controversy. We finished last month preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. It took us about a year and a half. And then in a few weeks, we're going to begin a series on the subject of grief. We're calling it Climbing a Mountain Called Grief because we recognize that's kind of what going through grief feels like. In between, as noted last week, there are, simply put, some things that need to be said. So that's what we're going to do again today. Now, I'm sure that there are more than 10, but it's probably best to keep it at a smaller number for lots of reasons. So while we are going to skip from subject to subject, and you might be left wondering why these things are even being talked about within the context of the same sermon, let me simply remind you that they're going to be talked about in the same sermon for one reason only. They need to be said. So without any more chit-chat, let's dig in. Ten things that need to be said. This is part two, and we find ourselves yet again in the very first psalm, Psalm chapter one. I'll invite you to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, 
but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Ten things that need to be said. By way of reminder, let me again state that the text from this first psalm is not going to be exegeted today. Usually that's what we do. But I'm not going to talk about the streams of water, and I'm not going to talk about how the man who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree that's being planted. The text today serves as a foundation for the other biblical text that we're going to utilize. The point, the point in bringing Psalm 1 into the equation is to simply highlight the importance of not walking in the counsel of the wicked and so forth, but rather delighting, and we ought to, by the way, rather delighting in the truths of God. And finally, when it's all said and done, living with the recognition that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, God sees it all, God knows it all. So what we're doing today is reminding ourselves of some things that we ought to be doing, in fact, how we should be living based on the Word of God. Last week, we dealt with three things that I noted needed to be said. First of all, when we gathered, we said, obedience matters. Obedience matters. Then we talked about the reality that marriage matters. We talked about lots of different things related to that. And finally, we said that gender, and in particular, gender as given by God as a gift, gender matters. This morning, Let's begin with talking about how family matters. Family matters. I call your attention to the very first book in the Bible, Genesis, the first chapter, beginning with verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Family was the plan of God from the very beginning. The man and the woman were brought together to be husband and wife and then they're told to have children, have children, and take care of God's creation. Now, as we begin to talk about family, let me mention something that we all know. There's no such thing as the perfect family. You guys have in-laws, right? So, oh boy, somebody's in real trouble today, <clears throat> and I'm complicit. So, if your family is a husband and wife with no kids or one parent with kids, relax, okay, relax. I'm not about to say anything that is going to make you uncomfortable at this point. <laughs> My point in bringing this up is to remind us that God, God is the creator of the family, and therefore the family matters. In fact, family is the cornerstone, literally, of civilization. So it's obviously then a big deal. As important as industry is, it's not as important as family. As important as education is, and you know as a nation, we spend an awful lot of money talking about education. 
as important as education is, it's not as important as the family. In fact, you name whatever it is you want to name in terms of something that you feel like greatly influences our world. And I will simply say to you, nothing, nothing in that sense is as important as family. If you think about the way the culture has gone and now is going, you'll readily recognize the way family is being devalued. Now granted, the talking heads will say they want to celebrate the family in all of its varied expressions. To moms, to dads, various barnyard animals, and so forth. But that's just a front to mask the reality they don't want the family as God designed it to flourish. And across the board, in study after study after study, it has proven to be true that while a healthy family is not a guarantee against a child failing in life, it is most certainly a help to his or her success in life. But you know as well as I do these days, family is in fact being degraded I've had conversations with ladies who have decided they wanted to have children, and often for them, this has meant that they would either redirect their career path, or in some cases, they would put their career path on hold for a time. And often, whenever they have mentioned to someone else that they're planning on starting a family and not putting all of their energy into whatever vocation they've been a part of, the response comes back, really? Are you sure you want to do that? Or, that's surprising, given that you're doing so well and you have so much potential. Listen, if God blesses you with a child, you're fulfilling your God-given potential. Now, I'm not saying that you can't work outside of the home. I'm not saying that you have to have children to reach your potential. But please, please, don't ever let anybody denigrate or downplay the importance of family and the importance of children. Children are a gift from God. The Bible tells us that. They're a gift from God. If you have teenagers, you recognize they're the gift that keeps on giving. But the truth of the matter is, the reason, I believe, at least at some level, for the mess we're in as a nation today is because we've devalued the family and we've devalued children. The whole concept of having children is downplayed, in particular in the current climate of trying to make women think they should be men and men should be women. People say children will keep a woman from fulfilling her dreams. That's not true. That is not true. Now, let me be clear and listen carefully, especially given the way that things are being twisted in today's world. I do not want to be misunderstood, so everybody lean in and listen carefully. I do not believe men are better than women. I do believe men are different than women. And women are different than men. As I shared last week, a man can't be a woman, and a woman can't be a man regardless of what Jerry Springer has to say. Womanhood and manhood are gifts from God. 
And they're both important for our understanding that family matters. Now, some of what I'm about to say may seem controversial in today's climate, and I would simply say that's fine. I, I didn't have the luxury of picking the era in which God chose me to live and to preach. But I am aware that some of you are familiar with terms complementarian and egalitarian. Complementarian and egalitarian. The definition of complementarianism is this. The first tenet of complementarianism is that men and women are, are equal in personhood. There is no difference in worth. Rather, proponents of complementarianism believe that men and women have separate, though equal, roles in marriage, family life, the church, and elsewhere. The word complementarianism derives from the word complement. Now, bear in mind, this is not complement spelled with an I, okay? So, just like complementary colors work well together to create beauty, one or one aspect of a dish complements another, the idea is that men and women complement one another for a more beautiful whole. This view holds that masculinity and femininity were created by God as meaningful distinctions indicating different roles that, when embraced, will lead to the best the best possible spiritual well-being for believers. That's complementarianism. Now, the definition of egalitarianism is this. Egalitarianism is defined as a belief in human equality, especially with respect to social, political, and economic affairs, or a social philosophy advocating the removal of inequalities among people. And that sounds great. Everybody in the room would say, we want to get rid of inequality in our nation. It sounds great. The issue, however, is that one of the inequalities, supposedly, that egalitarians believe is present is rooted in the teaching of Scripture, specifically as it relates to church leadership, mainly the role of pastor or elder. Paul's description of pastoral ministry as recorded in 1 Timothy 3 is clearly an injunction for male leadership. Now let's take a look at it and keep all of this in mind. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, let me make sure that you see I'm not trying to fool anybody, and I'm most certainly not trying to withhold information to our church family. The masculine personal pronouns that appear in most English translations of 1 Timothy 3, as well as Titus chapter 1, and so forth, are not all present in the Greek language, the original language of the New Testament. But there are good reasons that this is seen as, that this text, the, the idea of overseers or pastors or elders, 
there's good reason it's seen as being a reference to males. So, for example, while the English Standard translates the word from Greek as anyone, other translations, New American Standard, for example, will render this if any man aspires to the office. And the reason is because the word is, in fact, masculine, but it's also important to note, and I know this sounds confusing, but it's important to note that just because the word is masculine doesn't mean it's always referring to a male. So, for example, we talk about mankind, and when we say mankind, we're talking about males and females. So this is likely, though, what I'm talking about here, this is likely an argument egalitarians would utilize. They would say that uh, some of these words are not masculine. But the idea, the idea of an overseer in the Greek culture was a presiding official in a civic or religious organization. And here in 1 Timothy 3, it refers to oversight of a local church. The equivalent word from Jewish background is elder, which was most certainly in Jewish culture, male. It was certainly a man. So in the New Testament, we're going to see overseer and elder essentially as the same office. The modern day term that we most often use is pastor, while some churches will use the term elder. But interestingly enough, the early pastors of our church here were referred to as elder along with their last name. So elder and then the last name of the man serving as the pastor. Now we can further assume male leadership is the norm Paul has in mind, which again is why I'm complementarian, through the concept that he mentions of being the husband of one wife, or more literally a one-woman man. That's clear. Contrary to what we're being told today in our culture, you cannot be a husband or a one-woman man if you're not male. Went to school a lot of years to learn that. (laughs) Also, and then we're going to move on because I really don't want to belabor the point. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul has been talking about elders, and then he's going to talk about deacons. So he's talking about elders, 1 Timothy 3, and then he's going to be talking about deacons. And when he gets to verse 11, after talking about pastors and deacons, he says, their wives likewise. Now this could also be translated women likewise, And he goes on to speak of their, that is the females, character qualities. In either case, the phrase their wives or women likewise make it apparent he's been addressing men. Otherwise, why would he say women or wives likewise? So in context, that just makes sense. Now, why in the world would I say all of that? Because I want you to know that I'm not... And our church is not in any way ever trying to keep the gifted ladies among us from doing anything the Lord would approve. And all of this has implications for church family and family in general as well. Egalitarians would say that for Scripture to say that the office of pastor is reserved for male leadership only, they would say that's a breach of inequality. They would say, by the way, that churches that believe that as well are breaching the concepts of inequality. That's why I wouldn't consider myself, one reason, I wouldn't consider myself egalitarian. So why bring this up when talking about family? Because there is order to the family like there is order to the church family. And while I do believe in the equality of men and women, I would say I'm complementarian. But be careful, be very careful about that. 
because complementarians, just like every other group, have a wide range of adherents. Some people say, I'm a Republican. What does that mean? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Do, do all Republicans buy into everything in the party platform? Probably not. Some people say, I'm a Democrat. Do all Democrats buy into the party platform? Probably not. We'll talk about that in a moment. The point is, I am not a complementarian, because there's all kinds of nuance with this. I'm not a complementarian, and this church is not that kind of complementarian that would be saying a woman should only stay home and live in the kitchen. Nobody here's saying that. Nobody here believes that. But I am a complementarian, like the person who would say, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture, which is, by the way, verbatim what our church's doctrinal statement says. Now, back to where I was previously, before I so rudely interrupted myself. The point is family matters. Family matters. It is not a condescending role to be a mother. In fact, for those who are able to bear children, I would say it is, in fact, a very high honor. And yes, yes, I think a woman can have a job, a career, and hobbies. But I think if those things are more important than family, there's a problem. But listen carefully. I think the same is true for men. If job, career, and hobbies are more important than family, there's a problem. Your family, recognizing children are a gift from God, your family, right after your eternal life, is God's greatest gift to you. To the point, family matters. Secondly, and everybody breathe because there's only two points this morning. Life matters. Life matters. This is all across our nation, the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Our denomination is a pro-life denomination. Our church is a pro-life church in the midst of a pro-life denomination unapologetically. So all across our nation today, people are talking about the sanctity of human life in pro-life churches at least. I want to share four biblical texts and then we're going to comment and then we'll finish up. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You see a picture of protection. Proverbs 31, open your mouth for the mute, or as some translations will say, speak for those who have no voice. For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Isaiah 1, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Zechariah chapter 7, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. To the point, the sanctity of life embodies all kinds of things. Obviously, the abortion issue is included in that. But it has a lot of other implications as well. It has implications related to how we deal with immigration in our nation and how other nations deal with immigration. How do we deal with the sojourners among us? 
It has implication for end-of-life decisions, euthanasia, and so forth. There's a lot of talk these days about abuse. Particularly, people are talking about sexual abuse of women and children. Make no mistake, that is a sanctity of life issue. The biblical texts that we read most certainly apply to the scourge of abuse. Now, I recognize statistically, I want to be clear about this, I recognize there are men who are abused, but most often it's women and children. Let me simply say, real men do not abuse. Real men do not abuse. Real men jump in to stop abuse. As individuals, as families, as a church family, we must always do everything we can to both protect people from abuse as well as hold accountable to the fullest extent of the law those who are guilty of abusing. I've told you before, if there's ever a case of abuse reported to me, the first phone call that we make is to law enforcement. That's what we'll do. But it begs the question here on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, how did we ever get to this place? I mean, in American culture, a place where most of us would say has, at least at times, and I know we have a past, but for the most part at times, we have embodied something, at least in our lifetimes, something of civility. How in the world did we ever get here? Now, various kinds of abuse have always been a part of humanity, but the truth of the matter is, it's no wonder abuse is rampant in a culture that makes allowance to legally take the life of our most vulnerable. How did we ever get to the place where abortion would ever be acceptable and acceptable practice across the board? Now, I'm not going to talk you through all of the intricacies related to how a bill is passed. Most of you have had civics in school before the cancel culture took over, so you have some idea about how this works. I've been told there are two things one should never see in life. Number one, how a hot dog is made. <laughs> and number two, how a bill is passed through our government. At any rate, it is inconceivable to me as a man with some common sense and as a man with conviction, how in the world our nation could ever allow the taking of lives and abortion of innocent little babies? Now, I know this is a sensitive subject. I know a lot of people will accuse the pro-life crowd of not caring about mothers, which, by the way, that's not true. Just because we talk a lot about children doesn't mean we don't care about the mothers. If you give money to the American Cancer Society, it doesn't mean that you don't care about people who suffer from diabetes. You get it? But we talk about women, and we talk about children, and we do what we can to help both. I've heard people say, it would be better, so much better, if a child who is going to have to be raised in poverty would be aborted. Better for who? Most of us weren't raised with a silver spoon in our mouth. In fact, it could be argued, I suspect, that many of us were, ra were raised in environments that the world might call poverty. 
Aren't you glad you're here? By way of reminder, we believe in the sanctity of life from conception to natural death, beginning to end. We recognize what the Bible says, and that is there's a time to be born and a time to die. We think those times should be left up to God. So much so, in fact, that we encourage you this morning to give an offering to the Liberty Women's Clinic. Our church has a long history with this ministry whose goal it is to minister with the love of Christ and empower people to make informed, life-affirming decisions about pregnancy. And through that ministry, we help with children, we help mothers, and the truth is we help fathers as well. Our own Gretchen Miller and I serve on the board for the clinic, and we're grateful for the years of support that our church family has given to the Liberty Women's Clinic. Now, let me also pause and say, if you've been hurt because of an abortion, if you feel guilt and condemnation and all those emotions that go along with it, I want you to know there's help. Regardless of how, what level you've been involved with that, there is help. You can contact us, and I promise we'll do everything we can to help you, to get you in touch with someone who will be of great help through the pain. Abortion is not the unpardonable sin, but we recognize in accordance with the truths of Scripture that we must speak for those who have no voice. In fact, of all of the people that I've talked to through the years, the ladies in particular who have been involved with having an abortion, they have said to me, Ken, don't ever stop talking about that. I know it's uncomfortable, but I wish someone would have told me the truth. But sanctity of life includes care until death, conception until natural death. This is where our Baptist homes and healthcare ministries comes in to help. Psalm 91 or 71 verse 9 says, "Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails." We recognize that that the role of the elderly in our culture, though downplayed these days, ought not to be the case. We recognize that older people are a gift from God. There's a sanctity of life component to all of this. And for a hundred of years, Missouri Baptists, of which we are a part, have offered Christ-like care for the aging. There are now five locations of Baptist homes in Missouri. We have a home in Arcadia Valley. We have one in Ashland, in Chillicothe, in, in Independence, as well as in Ozark. And we're working on having one in Smithville as well. Our own Dr. Rodney Harrison serves as the president of Baptist Homes and Healthcare Ministries, and our own Dr. David Sundin serves as the vice president for organizational culture and care. We encourage you today to give an offering to Baptist Homes as well. We can give to Liberty Women's Clinic to help with the issue of abortion, sanctity of life. We can give to Baptist Homes and Healthcare to help with the issue of taking care of the aged. Now, I'm certain that we're all aware of the overturning of the Roe v. Wade um, situation that occurred last year. We know that was overturned. And we often talk about where were you when certain things happened in life. I'll never forget exactly where I was when I looked up at the screen on TV and I saw that come across the screen. That's a reminder to us as Christians and people who are in fact pro-life that we cannot give up. We cannot 
give up. We don't know exactly what God might still do. Countless people would have never dreamed that day would come, and yet it came. Keep being a light for life, even in, and I would dare say especially in, the darkness. Keep being a light for life. Now, many of you are aware also of the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which the House of Representatives passed several days ago. The Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Now, listen carefully, because you can't make this stuff up. If approved, the legislation would require health practitioners to care for an infant that is born alive after a failed abortion. Let that sink in. Legislation in the United States of America is necessary, legislation is necessary to require healthcare workers to care for an infant born alive. After, after a failed abortion. Now, just so I'm clear, I recognize not all Democrats are pro-choice, and I'm not sure that all Republicans are strongly pro-life as they should be. I typically manage to irritate people in both parties often. In fact, that is my spiritual gift. But I want you to listen to this, and this is straight from the news, not from Fox News, straight from the news, okay? I say not from Fox News because somebody always says, well, you got that from Fox News. Well, I didn't. So, la-di-da. <laughs> Here it is. The Wednesday after the vote, now think about this, okay? Democratic lawmakers took to Twitter shortly after the House passed the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. They took to Twitter to criticize those who supported what they refer to as such an extreme bill. The Wednesday after the vote, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tweeted, I quote, Today, instead of joining Democrats to condemn all political violence, House Republicans chose to push their extreme anti-choice agenda. She added, Democrats believe everyone deserves the freedom to access reproductive health services, without fear of violence, intimidation, or harassment. She continued, Democrats will always defend reproductive freedoms against extreme Republicans who disrespect a woman's right to choose the size and timing of her family. And finally, she said, these are serious personal decisions that must be made by women guided by faith, physician, and family, not by politicians. She said that, by the way, while guiding those decisions. Anybody else get the irony there? Chuck Schumer said, quote, The MAGA Republican-controlled House is putting on display their extreme views on women's health with legislation that does not even have the support of the American people. Vice President Kamala Harris also weighed in. She said, House Republicans passed an extreme bill today that will further jeopardize the right to reproductive health care 
in our country. Now, bear in mind, again, this bill is about forcing healthcare workers to render aid to an infant, to an infant born alive after a failed abortion procedure. Harris continued, this is yet another attempt by Republican legislators to control women's bodies. Minority House Whip Catherine Clark said the extreme bill was akin to, quote, assaulting reproductive justice. That's overwhelming, isn't it? How did we ever get here? All I can say in response, and listen carefully, is what the Apostle John said. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You've been listening to Stand Forever with Ken Parker. Thank you for taking the time to join us. If you'd like to correspond with us, feel free to email from the contact information found on our church website, www.carneyfbc.com, or write to us at Stand Forever, 303 South Grove Street, Kearney, Missouri, 64060.